And we want to continue where we left off this morning, basically. And uh, there are some things that we'll be looking at tonight that really kind of fit in with what we said this morning already. But we're going to look at how the Gospel of John here in chapter 10, verses 30 through 42, uh, that takes us to the end of the chapter, shows that Jesus is God, showing Jesus as God. You know, sometimes we think that we could have been on earth, or we we think about what it could have been like to be on earth when Jesus was here. Uh, you know, and hear uh, him speak, or hear him teach. And we sometimes think, you know, if I had been here when Jesus was here, maybe my faith would even be stronger. Well, maybe, and maybe not. John shows us that some who saw Jesus' miracles and heard him teach still wanted to kill him. And they finally would succeed later here in uh, our uh, study of John. We'll see that as all the Gospels point to that. But there were some that believed. And both, both groups saw the evidence. But they went totally in opposite directions. And we probably know people like that today. They've seen and they've heard the word of God, but some say, I don't want anything to do with it. Others are following and trusting Christ. And, and as we heard testimony tonight, how that many of you have trusted Christ as your Savior, and it was a wonderful day when that took place. You know, a positive response to Jesus depends on more than just evidence. It also requires a heart that the Spirit of God has opened to the truth. And so as we come to the Bible, our prayer should always be, Lord, open my heart to the truth. And this is the really the end of Jesus' public ministry here in John's Gospel. And opposition has been mounting ever since chapter 5, and when he healed the man by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, And the Jews wanted to kill Jesus then, in chapter 5, verse 18, it says, He not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. And they wanted to pick up stones then to stone him, but now here we come to verse 33, and they say, Because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. They want to pick up stones again. We see that in verse 31. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. But because Jesus' time had not yet come, he leaves them and he returns to a place beyond Jordan where John the Baptist had baptized both Jesus and many others. We see that in verse 40. But there is a contrast in the hostility in Jerusalem and Jesus did see many believe in him. And so here in our text tonight, John is repeating some of the reasons to believe in Jesus that we've already looked at, uh, keeping in mind his overall aim for writing. Again, in chapter 20, verse 31, was that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So Jesus shows us here Jesus' words, his works, his person, even gives 
John the Baptist's testimony, and that the scriptures all show him to be God. Everything in the Christian faith depends on the correct answer to Jesus' question that he asked back in Matthew 16 and verse 15, Whom say ye that I am? John kind of hammers away at this issue uh, from every angle. And if Jesus is not the eternal word made flesh who gave himself on the cross for our sins, then there is no basis for Christianity and we have no business even meeting here tonight. This is, this is futile, this is vain, this is empty if this is not true. But Jesus, if Jesus, who John proclaims him to be, then you must submit your life to him no matter what the hardships you may fail uh, uh, entail. And some of you have met some great hardships over the years because you became a Christian. Now, I believe there are five lines of evidence here. Uh, first of all, Jesus' words show him to be God. In verse 30, Jesus states, I and my Father are one. The word one there indicates that Jesus and his Father are not one person, but one in essence. John 1.1 shows us that Jesus is fully God, and yet he's distinct from the Father. It says there, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus could not be with God if he were the same person as the Father, and yet he was God. And so John consistently shows this throughout his gospel. Jesus repeatedly claims to have been sent to the earth by the Father, which indicates a distinction of persons. And also he prays to the Father, which would be pointless if he and the Father were the same person. And yet Jesus is God. Now you need to be clear on this because there are many groups, religions, churches, perhaps here in our, our own community that are going to deny the Trinity while they purport to preach the gospel. One may state in their belief something like this. Everyone has sinned and needs salvation. Salvation comes by grace through faith based on the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Uh, that sounds pretty good. No problem. But regarding God, they state there is one God who has revealed himself as our father in his son, Jesus Christ. And as the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is God manifested in flesh. He is both God and man. Now, as you look at that, the last part of it sounds pretty good again. It's true. Jesus Christ is God manifested in the flesh, both God and man. But where's the problem? The problem is, God has not just revealed himself as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is an ancient heresy called modalism. You may not have heard that, so I'm giving you something that you may or may not know, but it's uh, if you studied theology in college, maybe you ran across this, but uh, modalism... God exists eternally as one God in three distinct persons, each whom is fully God. And Jesus' statement that he and the Father are one does not mean that they are just one person. Now, I realize I'm getting theologically deep here, so I'll try to explain it as simply as I can. 
Modalism is the belief that God is one God who shows himself in three different ways, sometimes as the Father, sometimes as the Son, sometimes the Holy Spirit. It describes God in purely functional terms. When he is saving the world on the cross, he's called Jesus. When he's convicting the world of sin, he's called the Holy Spirit. And when he's creating the world, he's called Father. The error here is that this is contrary to what we believe. One God who eternally exists in three persons, not modes. That's where we get the word modalism. Not three modes of functuality. It's not one God with three names. But it's one God in three persons. Now, there are a lot of different illustrations of this to help us to understand this. And usually, most illustrations have a problem with them. I'm going to use the... Illustration of the egg. I realize most physical illustrations of a spiritual truth often have a fault somewhere. And there would be those who say, well, this isn't a valid illustration. It should not be used. But for the sake of showing the difference between the doctrine of God in three persons and the doctrine of God with three names, let's think about it for a moment. The Trinitarian Trinitarian would say that God is three persons, And we could compare them to the shell, the yolk, and the white of an egg. One egg made of three parts. God is one God in three persons. Now the modalist will say you have one egg, but you call it three different names. Sometimes the egg is the father, sometimes the egg is the son, sometimes the egg is the Holy Spirit. Again, as I say, most illustrations like that break down at some point, but I think this can help us to understand a little bit what the problem is here. Some say that Jesus' statement here only means that he is united with the Father in his purpose and actions of keeping the sheep from the enemy. But Jesus claimed that he gives eternal life to his sheep and his claim to be able to keep them from all predators from eternity are claims of deity. And also the Jews clearly understood Jesus to be making the claim to be God. They state as their reason for attempting to stone Jesus because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. They got it backwards, didn't they? The truth is, Jesus, being God, became a man, not vice versa. He wasn't a man that became God. He was God that became a man, but at least they understood his claim to be God. Now back in chapter 5, when the Jews accused Jesus of making himself equal with God, he did not tear his garments in horror and cry, God forbid that you would think such a thing. No, rather he went to great lengths to affirm the charges And here, rather than deny the Jews' accusation, he proceeds to defend his claims as God. Look at it, verse 34. Verse 34 through 36, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods, if he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, Because I said, I am the Son of God. Now this was the uh, rabbinic form of argument that some, including even the Jehovah Witnesses, misunderstand. 
They claim that Jesus was just kind of toning down his claim to deity by showing the term gods can legitimately be used of men in certain ways. And so he, a man, may be called the son of God. But Jesus had been, if Jesus had been toning down his claim to deity, the Jews would not have tried to seize him as they did in verse 39 after his explanation. Now, the quote actually comes, these verses in verse 36 and uh, 34 through 36, a quote comes from Psalm 82. And you can check that uh, uh, at a later time, but just make a note there. Psalm 82, either in your margin of your Bible, in your notes, Psalm 82, which condemns the corrupt judges in Israel. Their proper role would have been to act as God under his authority in the administration of justice. And the psalmist referred to them as God's, small g, not because they were divine in some sense, but because they were acting as God in their role as judges. And Jesus' argument is from the lesser to the greater. If mere men could be called gods because of their position as a judge, then how much more should I, the Lord Jesus, whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, be called the Son of God? So he's not classing himself with among men. He's separating himself. He's distinguishing himself from men. So both here and consistently throughout the gospel of John, Jesus' words show that he was God. Secondly, his works show him to be God. Jesus' works show him to be God. Jesus repeatedly appealed to his works, which were backed up by his words replying to the Jews' demand that he tell them plainly whether he was the Messiah. Jesus states in verse 25, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Now when the Jews picked up stones to stone Jesus after his claim to be one with the Father, there in verse 30, he answers in verse 32, Many good works have I showed you from my Father, for which those works do ye stone me. And then after his verbal defense to be God, he again adds in verses 37 and 38, If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, Believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. In either case, he points out that his works backed up his verbal claims. Now that term, works, refers to all that Jesus did to promote the Father's purpose. Often specifically to the, the miracles that he did. In a general sense, Jesus told the disciples, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. It's chapter 4, verse 34. After he healed the paralyzed man by the pool of Bethesda, he def in defending his equality with God, Jesus referred to both to the totality of the works and to the miracle of healing that man. He said in chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do, for what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise, for the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that, that himself doeth. And he shall show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. 
And then in the same discourse there in chapter 5, verse 36, But I have a greater witness than that of John for the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that my that the Father has sent me. Later in the upper room, after Philip asked Jesus to show them the Father, how does he reply? Uh, you go to chapter 14 and verse 9, and it says, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, and how sayest thou then, Show me the Father? Believest thou not that I am the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Again, later he'll say, as he indicts the Jewish leaders for rejecting both his words and his works, in chapter 15, verse 22, If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. In verse 24 of John 15, If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they seen and hated both me and my father. So all that Jesus said and did, especially his miracles, confirmed that he is God in human flesh. Again, back here in chapter 10, Jesus appeals one last time to these hard-hearted Jewish uh, leaders. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. You see, the idea is here that Jesus is looking for them to have a moment of insight and then remain permanently in the knowledge that and that moment has brought to them. He's giving them every opportunity to trust Him, to believe in Him. He wants them to come to full faith. And that's what He wants for everyone here tonight. To come to a place of full faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't doubt Him. Don't reject Him. You see, there, there are two distinct persons. He's talking about his unity with the Father. And yet, with the Holy Spirit, they comprise one true God. It's no accident that the liberal theologians and the skeptics invariably attack the miracles in the Bible. Oh, there's no such thing as miracles. That's a bunch of, of myths and, and fables. You can't believe that. You can't believe that, that, that there's supernatural things happening like that. Well, when God's involved, there's a lot of supernatural things involved. It was supernatural that he saved you and me. Poor lost sinners. Sometimes we we hear the, the liberal mind say something like this, just show me a miracle and I'll believe. Yeah, uh-huh. But these Jews, they saw many miracles and they still didn't believe. In chapter 11, we're going to get to chapter 11, Lord willing, next Sunday, and they're going to witness Lazarus being raised from the dead. But their response will not, they, their response will not be that they fall before Jesus and worship him in faith. 
But that's going to just intensify their plans to kill him. You may have to ask, why is this? Why did people in Jesus' day reject the miracles that they witnessed with their own eyes? They saw it themselves. Why do people in our day reject the eyewitness testimony of credible witnesses who report the miracles of Jesus? I think the only answer is that they realize that if Jesus really did these things, then he is the Lord. And they will have to repent of their sins. And they will have to submit their lives to him. People want to do their own thing. People want to go their own way. In the case of the Jewish leaders, they liked their own place of power. So they didn't want to yield to Jesus as Lord. In the case of of modern liberal scholars, they take pride in their intellectual abilities and their recognition that they get by writing books and attacking the credibility of the New Testament. But in both cases, the Jewish leaders and the modern skeptics They don't really want to repent of their sin. They don't want to recognize that they're lost and they're they're sinners and they need to bow before Jesus. As I sang about this morning, every knee will bow. There's going to be a day every knee is going to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. But people insist on attacking him. And so these miracles are a powerful witness to Jesus' deity. So Jesus' words show him to be God. Jesus' works show him to be God. Thirdly, Jesus' person shows him to be God. The Jew put on hold their attempt to stone Jesus until he finished speaking. That was nice of them. But they did not accept his testimony of his words or his works. And so we read in verse 39, Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. And this could have been a miracle in itself, where God would blind their eyes long enough for him to escape. I don't know how he did it, but it says he did it. I think that Jesus' person was so commanding and in control of the situation, the enemies dared not to lay a hand on him. And if we've seen... As we've seen repeatedly in John, no one could harm Jesus until his hour appointed by the Father. Jesus was not a helpless victim. He was always in control, even over his own death and resurrection. His words, his works, and his person all show him to be God. Number four, John, the Baptist's testimony, shows Jesus to be God. And John concludes this section about Jesus' public ministry by reporting that Jesus left Jerusalem, went away beyond the Jordan where John was first baptizing. And by this time, John had been executed, but the effects of his ministry still lingered on, as we read in verse 41. It says there, And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. Now, we first encountered John's witness in John chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, where it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness to to that uh, uh, witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. In verse 15 of chapter 1, John testifies of Jesus. He says, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. For he was before me. You see, Jesus was 
uh, six months younger, humanly speaking, than John the Baptist. But the prophet, John the Baptist, recognized his pre-existence because he recognized him as God. And there follows an extended section here where Jews sent uh, to John to ask if he were the Messiah, which he denied. Rather, he identified himself as the one who was the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah. He pointed to Jesus and he proclaimed in John chapter 1 and verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And after stating that Jesus would be the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit, John added, And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Later, when some of John's followers were concerned about uh, because of Jesus' growing popularity, John states that Jesus was the bridegroom and he, John, was the only, only the best man. And then he adds in chapter 3, verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus told his Jewish critics in chapter 5, verse 33, Ye sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. So if John was mistaken about who Jesus is, well, then Jesus was also mistaken. Because he affirmed that John spoke the truth. Now notice that John never performed a miracle. It says that here in verse 41. But he testified faithfully to the truth about Jesus. And the result was that even after John was beheaded, these people in this region believed John's testimony, and through him they came to believe in Jesus. And that's a great legacy to leave behind. Tell people the truth about who Jesus is so they will come to believe on him. Now, our job is not to point people to us. But our job is to point people to Jesus. And our mission here in our community is not to necessarily invite unsaved people to our church. There's nothing wrong with that. If unsaved people come to our church, we'll we'll welcome them. That's not our mission, though. It's not to invite unsaved people to church. It's not for the music. That's not our mission. Although we desire our music to be God-honoring and worshipful and a blessing. But it's not our mission. Our mission is not just to be friendly. Although we do want to be outgoing. We do want to be friendly to those who regularly attend and those who visit. We want people to feel welcome and encouraged by those who are genuinely interested in them. It's not our mission. And it's not the dynamic preaching and teaching with PowerPoints and outlines to help follow along. Although we do desire and we do this so that we can be understood and we want to see God's word taught and explained so there will be spiritual growth. Yes, these are all important things and the reason why we have church services. But first of all, we need to be a light in the world to point people to Jesus. We need to go out of those doors and we need to seek to point people to Jesus. And then bring them to Jesus through the power and direction of the Holy Spirit to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that is what we need to be doing in this world we live in. And then once they've trusted Christ, 
We have this place here. We have a place where they can be nurtured and they can grow in Christian their Christian lives. Our goal is not primarily to get unsaved people to come to church. That is a goal of many churches. And so they use all kinds of means and they use all kinds of gimmicks and they use all kinds of entertainment to try to draw people in. And their churches end up looking like rock concerts and nightclub scenes and cool places and entertainment centers using the worldly methods to get worldly people to attend church. No. Jesus said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go out those doors and preach and teach and witness to people about Jesus. Point them to Jesus and then bring them back to be nurtured and to be growing in Christ. Now, we certainly are going to preach the gospel here. Uh, We preach the gospel even as we've gone through the gospel of John here. But our primary function is not to evangelize in this place, but to disciple those who need to grow. If someone comes in, they're not saved, they don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, are we going to say, no, no, we can't do that? No, we're not going to say that, are we? We're going to point them to Jesus. Right here in the church. The greatest need is, uh, or the greatest need is for Christians to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and develop in their Christian lives so that they can be bringing others to Christ. So Jesus' words, his works, his person, John the Baptist, all give his testimony, all give sufficient reasons to believe that Jesus as God and Savior. But there is one more here. And that is the inerrant scriptures show Jesus to be God. You know, we've already seen this from Jesus' citation here of Psalm 82. It's actually Psalm 82, verse 6. And he uses that to support his claim to be the Son of God, verse 34. But here I want to focus on the parenthetical remark that kind of Jesus throws in here, so to speak. And it says, and the scripture cannot be broken. Oh, that's a wonderful phrase. I thank God for that. The scripture cannot be broken. It's a remarkable comment. It means the scripture cannot be emptied of its force by being shown to be erroneous. Scripture in its original languages is authoritative and inerrant, and that inspired, inerrant scripture has been faithfully preserved for us in our King James Bibles. Now, even more noteworthy is the fact that Jesus picks a rather obscure psalm and picks out a single word in that psalm, the word God's, to make his point. And this means that the very words of scripture are true and authoritative. Now, some are going to argue that the ideas in Scripture are inspired, not the exact words. Be careful there. When you hear someone say, you know, the ideas are inspired, but not the words. Others say, well, we can't determine the meaning of the words because the meaning is always filtered through our subjective interpretation. So we really don't know exactly what it says. And there's going to be others who are going to say, you know, the, the word of God was lost for a long time and we've got to find it again. Don't believe that. It's not true. 
Most all of the modern versions of the Bible are based on corrupted text and have been interpreted by what is called dynamic equivalence, which is a thought-by-thought translation rather than a word-for-word translation process. And Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every, what's it say? Word, which proceedeth out of the mouth of God. I want you to notice that. Every word. And here in our text says, And the scripture cannot be broken. It speaks of the doctrine of preservation. It's crucial in saying, We have God's word in our hands today. Some people have doubts about that. I don't have a doubt about it at all. God has preserved His Word in our King James Bible. What am I saying? Well, the use of dynamic equivalency translations based on corrupted text goes against the Savior's high view of the inspired Scripture. Jesus often appealed to Scripture as the final infallible authority, sometimes basing His argument on a verb tense. He defeated Satan by quoting Scripture three times in Matthew chapter 4. And he often cites Scripture as the basis of his actions. Jesus said the Scriptures testify about him. The inspired, inerrant, authoritative Scriptures show Jesus to be God. Now, in spite of all this evidence, some still reject Jesus while others believe in him. As we see here in verses 39 through 42, And I want you to notice as we close tonight a contrast here between verse 39 and verse 42. It says in verse 39, Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. And then in verse 42 it says, And many believed on him there. The last word is there. And it emphasizes this contrast. In Jerusalem where you would have thought Jesus would have been welcomed as the Messiah, he was rejected. But there, outside of Judea, many believed in him through the witness of the martyred forerunner coupled with the presence of Jesus himself. There seems to be a parallel here with chapter 4 where the despised Samaritans believed in Jesus not only because of the woman's witness, the woman at the well, but also of the direct contact with Jesus. Now, I think there are some practical lessons that we can have here tonight as we as we wrap this up number one you may never live to see how god uses your witness think about that you may never live to see how god uses your witness and your testimony but you should faithfully point try to point people to jesus anyway john did not live to see the people come to faith But here, as we're told about his witness, it was still having an impact. It was a key factor in many of of those that believed. The second lesson I think we can learn is how hard the human heart is apart from God's grace. Now, maybe you've witnessed to somebody and they just... They just won't give in. They just won't... They won't accept what you're saying from God's word. They just won't believe. And you've perhaps prayed for them and you've witnessed to them time and time again. But here, these Jewish leaders had more than sufficient reasons to believe in Jesus, but they still were intent on murdering Him. 
Folks, when you get opportunities to tell people about Jesus, pray that God will soften their heart hearts. Soften their hard hearts and open their blind eyes. Make it a matter of prayer. And then thirdly, the third witness, uh, uh, lesson is that if some reject our witness, don't give up. Don't quit. Some feed, uh, seed falls on the road and doesn't sprout. Other seed sprouts up, quickly dies because it took, had no root. And still other seed gets choked out by the weeds. But some seed bears fruit to eternal life. Keep sowing. Keep sowing the seed. Keep pointing people to Jesus because He is the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven,